Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Douglas Wilson. This is episode 237. Episode 237. So, I'd like to talk about three Republicans. And and uh, and I want to situate this so that we understand what kind of political system we are in. Uh, so, the, um, the president nominated, nominated uh, a black woman to be the next Supreme Court uh, justice and and she was uh, just confirmed, so she is now on the Supreme Court. Justice Jackson. Now, uh, three Republicans voted to confirm her. They were Susan Collins of Maine, um, uh, Senator Murkowski of Alaska, and Mitt Romney of Utah. So those three Republicans voted to confirm. Now it is easy. Uh, for conservatives, hardline conservatives, to pile on the Republicans uh, at times like this, see, you know, being uh, Republicans are worthless. Uh, look, look, three three Republicans uh, voted for this hard left uh, justice. Okay, now the thing that I think I think people have short memories, and I think that they don't know how the system works. Up to this point, basically, uh, before the recent polarization in our politics, uh, the the um, Republican approach to Supreme Court nominations uh, was sort of a love me, love my dog um, approach. They tended to assume that if a nominee was qualified uh, in terms of craft competence, you know, graduated from a good school, had a good track record on the courts and it wasn't a flaming crazy, um, then they would support whoever the president who won the election nominated. So basically, um, Republicans tended to, to vote to confirm um, if, uh, if a Democratic president nominated a liberal justice, very conservative Republicans would vote to confirm that justice because they are uh, legally qualified, and that was the consequence of the election, right? Um, so that that has been the general pattern that P- Republicans have followed. Um, the Democrats, um, by way of contrast, when anybody is nominated to the Supreme Court that that might seriously alter um, uh, the balance of power or might seriously threaten um, abortion rights or, you know, something like that. Um, what they wind up doing is they, they have a scorched earth policy. We saw it most recently with the, the, um, nomination of justice Kavanaugh, where, uh, they pull out all the stops. It, uh, this new era was, uh, ushered in with the uh, character assassination of Robert Bork, um, a few decades ago. And so um, the Democrats have been borking um, Republican nominees ever since. So uh, they, they just, they, like I said, scorched, uh, like I said, scorched earth. Now, in this setup, 
when you have an evenly divided country, for example, we have 50 states, two senators from each state, that gives us 100 senators. When you have an evenly divided country, which we do, basically 50 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats, uh, or people who caucus with Democrats, like Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat, but he caucuses with them. It's a 50-50 tie. That gives the uh, um, uh, the vice president is then the tie-breaking vote. And since the Democrats won the uh, the White House, uh, a Democrat is the tie-breaking vote, which gives the control of the committees and all of that to the Democrats. Okay? So we have a country that's split clean down the middle, 50-50, and just barely inched over on the Democratic side because of who's in the White House. Now, when you have that kind of situation, um, what that does is it gives all the um, swing power to the least reliable members of that, of what, whatever party it is. So, for example, uh, these three Republicans are marginal Republicans. Murkowski and Collins and Romney are all marginal, uh, marginal uh, Republicans and and not conservatives at all, and because but because the Senate is tied fifty fifty, they've got they got they have the authority to uh, threaten to walk, which is what they did this time. So on the confirmation vote for Jackson, these three said, "Okay, we're we're not gonna we're gonna break party ranks and we're gonna vote with the Democrats." But this is, this uh, works against uh, the left also because this is precisely the same uh, thing that happened with uh, Biden's build build back better or whatever it was called his trillion dollar uh, spree. Um, uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and uh, Senator Cinema of Arizona are the most conservative Democrats. So you you can have forty eight hardcore left Democrats and the, and the power to sink their whole project is handed over to the most conservative Democrats, the, the two Democrats who are the least like the other Democrats. They have all of a sudden all the, all the power. They're the swing vote. And that's what happened with the confirmation of Jackson um, here, where the three Republicans who were the least Republican of all of them, had the most swing, the most say, the most power. This is how our system works. Um, if we had a parliamentary system like, um, like Great Britain has, or other, other nations have, Israel has a parliamentary system, uh, England has a parliamentary system, there the coalitions are formed after the election. Um, in America, we, we form the coalition before the election. So you've got all these disparate, uh, types on the Republican side. You've got war hawks, you've got, uh, classical liberals, you've got libertarians, you've got social conservatives, and they all come together in this big party before the election and then try to get their, um, people elected. The Democrats do the same. They come together before the election. In a parliamentary system, all the horse trading happens after the election. 
So you might not know um, when you vote for your local member of parliament, um, you you don't know how it's going to come out. You don't know who the prime minister is because the prime minister is the sort of the lead. It's a uh, it's hard to explain. It's like trying to explain cricket to a um, a baseball fan. But the the prime minister is a member of parliament. Uh, in our system, the president is running for a separate office entirely. And so what what you have here is. In our in our system, I, I, our system has many strengths and many things that I appreciate about it. But one of the weaknesses is that it gives a lot of power to the squishiest. Right? It gives a lot of power when everything comes down to a very close vote in the Senate. Then the the flip floppers, you know, Mitt Romney is famous for his flip flops. The flip floppers all of a sudden have all kinds of authority and power. And that's what we're seeing. Um, this is not anything that is uh, uniquely nefarious about the Republicans. The Democrats are up against the same sort of problem. Continuing on with podcast episode 237, uh, we're continuing our ongoing study of sins in the New Testament, a pursuit that we like to call hamartiology. Today's installment has one use in the New Testament, which refers to a sin. The translators in Jude 11 render it as run greedily, and the word is ekuno, E-K, epsilon kappa, E-K, chi, upsilon, nu, omicron, ekuno, or E-K-C-H-U-N-O, ekuno. So here it is. Woe unto them, this is Jude 11, woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and run greedily, excuse me, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Okay, woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Now, the interesting thing, this ran greedily, um, is the rendering of Ek kuno, ek kuno. Now, but here's the same word translated as shed in Luke 11.50, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. Now, this is, uh, now, and it gets even more interesting. Even more interesting is that the word is translated as gushed out, gushed out in Acts 1.18. Now, this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. That's Acts one eighteen. All right, so that's the same word, ekuno. So, run greedily, right? Shed, and then gushed out. And that gives you a, a sense. I think these other translations, these other contexts, give you some... Um, contextual understanding of just how greedily these false teachers ran after their reward. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam. In other words, how hungry, how hungry were they for reward? Well, they were very hungry. It's sort of like their their pursuit of um, the pursuit of that reward was like a, a gusher, All right? And also that indicates. 
the the blood that was shed is is that was a lot of bloodletting from the foundation of the world down to the present. So there you go. Ekuneo. All right, continuing on with the podcast, episode 237. Here we are. Thanks for thanks for staying with us. I want to uh, what what book am I reviewing today? Well, I just recently finished this book. Uh, it's a book that my dad wrote. Uh, my dad's written about eleven books, I think. Um, he, well, it's a long story. Um, he wrote one book back in the '60s, and uh, and that book was Principles of War: Thoughts on Strategic Evangelism, which has been in print since that time. And it's sort of an underground classic. It's just a really good book, Principles of War. And then uh, in his old old age, uh, I think probably beginning 10 years ago, he's 94 now. So he's probably he was probably in his 80s when this began to happen. Uh, a number of things that he taught over the, oh, oh one other thing. Um, a number of decades ago, um, he published a book, How to Be Free from Bitterness. And and to be more accurate, he didn't publish it. What what happened uh, with that was he was a conference speaker, a regular conference speaker, and one of his um, go to talks was how to be free from bitterness. And so what happened was uh, I thought I thought well that, that'd be a great booklet. And so I had my secretary uh, transcribe his conference talk, and um, she transcribed it, and then I went through and edited it and, and made it fit for publication. And then we sent it off to the printer, had a couple thousand, I think, a couple thousand printed. Um, and then I called my dad um, to come down, come come down, come by the office. I've got something to show you. And I gave him a, a bunch of boxes of, of a book he had written without knowing it. <laughs> so, but since that time, How to Be Free from Bitterness has had a few, uh, some other essays uh, added to it, and uh, CCM, my dad's um, uh, organization, Community Christian Ministries, has printed and distributed hundreds of thousands of copies of that uh, booklet, How to Be Free from Bitterness. Uh, and it's been translated, I think, into over 20 languages. It's, um, that's a classic. That's, that one's going to go and go and go. So Principles of War and How to Be Free from Bitterness are two books that he's uh, really well known for. Um, but in the last 10 years, I'd say, um, we've uh, had the uh, opportunity to gather up a bunch of things that he wrote or that he dictated um, and um, and started putting them, them into print. Um, he uh, follow up on Principles of War, a book called Weapons and Tactics, a book on evangelism called Taking Men Alive, um, a book on uh, uh, Dead and Alive is another one, and his autobiography, which is a beast called Grace Upon Grace. Um, so he's written a lot of books. Anyway, um, I just finished reading a book of his that I had not read before, and um, it had just recently gotten into print last year or so. And this book is simply called Answered Prayer. So I finally got around to it. I'm reviewing this book, Answered Prayer. Um, and I encourage you to get it. It's published by CCM, Answered Prayer by Jim Wilson. Now, uh, reading this book was very interesting because growing up in the family I grew up in, um, we were accustomed 
to praying for our needs and accustomed to seeing God uh, answer uh, our prayers. And so a lot of the stories in this book I, I was familiar with. I was familiar with a lot of these stories. At the same time, there were some stories I was not familiar with and some surprises and some uh, twists and turns. It was, it was a delightful read for me also. But to give you uh, an idea of how this, um, the, the sorts of um, stories you'll find in this book, it's a very encouraging book. Um, so one of the stories involves, uh, well, I'll tell you two stories. One of them involves me and one involves my younger brother. I'll start with my younger brother, uh, Gordon who's eight years younger than I am. Um, when he was a, when he was a kid, this was after my folks had moved to Moscow. Uh, one of Gordon's uh, friends was the son of the Episcopal priest. So, uh, Gordon is the son of the, um, evangelical literature minister guy. And the Episcopal priest had, uh, a son and he and Gordon were, um, pals. And so one day they were playing, and as happens with boys playing, uh, they broke somebody's window, I think, with a baseball. So they, the, a classic setup, they, um, uh, they broke somebody's window. And the, uh, the Episcopal boy said, oh, no, we're going to have to get jobs now and uh, pay for that. You know, we're going to. And Gordon, who was pretty young at the time, said, oh, no, that's not how we do it. What we do is we'll sit down around the table, hold hands, and pray. <laughs> that's, that's how we're going to pay for the window. We're going to ask God to pay for the window. Um, the other, another story, this was, um, uh, this was many years ago. This, and this, this story is in Grace Upon Grace, and the story is also in this book, Answered Prayer. Basically, uh, my dad culled a bunch of the stories that had to do with uh, petitions and provision and answered prayer, and um, put them all together in this one book. Really, it's a really encouraging book. My my parents, uh, my dad had been a naval officer. When he got out of the navy, he went to work for a Christian organization that was broke, that would, didn't have much money. And uh, my parents had been greatly impressed by George Mueller, the stories of uh, George Mueller, who ran an orphanage. <laughs> in England in uh, the 19th century, and he would not um, send out fundraising letters. He would not make an appeal for funds, and he would raise money by asking God uh, to supply um, the needs of these orphans. And uh, George Mueller, there are a number of remarkable answers to prayer in George Mueller's life, and uh, my parents wanted to live that way. So they left the, uh, the Navy which was a steady paycheck. And uh, they, the first place they lived after the Navy was Tacoma Park, Maryland. We lived there for two years before uh, we moved to Annapolis, where I grew up. So I was oh, four or five years old. My sister was a baby. She was three years younger. So I was probably four um, for when this happened. And so there was me, my younger brother, and then my sister, who was a baby. And my parents wanted to live the George Mueller way, um, but they were used to, they were also used to a steady paycheck from the Navy. And they, one, one day they ran out of milk and they ran out of bread. And so there they were. We had a nice, uh, nice house in Tacoma Park, Maryland, where they were living. And it looked, everything looked fine. 
And so they, uh, okay, we need, um, we need milk and we need bread. Now, as I've heard the story told, um, this may not, this part may not be in the book. They were feeling a little wobbly in the faith department. They knew that they were supposed to pray in faith. And so they, um, what they thought is, well, why don't we ask, um, uh, Douglas to pray? Why don't we ask one of the kids to pray? Because they, they won't know any different. They, you know, they'll, and they'll pray in faith and we're not sure. Um, so we had a family prayer meeting and, um, I prayed for milk and prayed for bread and maybe perhaps my brother did too. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, but we prayed for milk and for bread. And then shortly after that, there was a knock at the door, ring at the doorbell. My mom went to, um, answer the door and there was a milkman standing there and he said congratulations lady you know you've won a year's supply of milk from <laughs> the empty Ump milk company and um and uh, you know where did this come from well either an anonymous donor or it was around christmas maybe um my parents uh, had the name picked out of a phone book or something i don't i don't know but basically uh, milk was delivered uh, to their house for as long as we lived in Tacoma Park, Maryland. And, um, uh, and in this book, Answered Prayer, um, my dad says that, uh, when the milkman was gone, we stood, uh, we stood there and we thanked the Lord for the milk and reminded the Lord that we had asked for bread also. And, uh, a little bit later, my mom came running up to my dad. She was dusting and picked up a lamp, um, on the end table to dust underneath it. And there was a Oh, there was a $5 bill, maybe $10 bill. Uh, and also remember, this is the late fifties. So, um, there was money under the lamp and they'd been counseling someone the night before who felt really impressed that he ought to give them money. But looking, looking around at the house, it didn't look like they needed money and he was embarrassed to offer my parents money. So he just slipped some money under the lamp and that was the, that was the bread and a few other things. So. This book, Answered Prayer, published by CCM, um, Jim Wilson, by Jim Wilson, is a book that is full of stories like that. Um, I think you'll be blessed. Before I go today, I want to tell you about a new documentary that Canon is releasing from my daughter, Rebecca Merkel. It is called Eve in Exile, and it comes out on May 6th. Even Exile is a movie about the failure of feminism and the future of femininity. Be sure to check it out exclusively on Canon Plus. Here's a quick look. What does it mean to be a woman? Apparently nothing at all. Can you provide a definition for the word woman? I can't. So I'm not a biologist. Of Our culture hates the idea of boundaries. We just want there to be no rules, no lines, no definitions. As a woman, what is that? Was to each their own. We're Christian women, and we want to live in the way God told us to. But we're looking out over this current playing field and wondering where on earth we are supposed to stand. Our daughters are born into the ruins of what used to be a Christian nation, and we are raising them in the wreckage of the West. What does obedience look like in this madhouse?